Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty. Hello and welcome to Business Fights Poverty Spotlight Interviews. I am Katie Heisen, Director of Thought Leadership. Each week, these interviews provide you with the insights from a different perspective of Business Fight Poverty Network, giving you first-hand understanding of how businesses and others are working on some of the world's biggest social challenges. Today, I am joined by Chris Anderson and David Nash. Both are instrumental within the Zurich Floods Resilience Programme, with floods affecting more people than any other natural hazard. They are eight years into a 10-year programme. Their aim, to enhance flood resilience with a focus on pre-event risk reduction. Chris works for the development organisation Practical Action, whilst David works within the Zurich Foundation, the private foundation funded by the Zurich Insurance Group. What is interesting about this conversation is the openness and willingness to share the insights into their partnership. Together, Chris and David reveal practical tips to make a collaboration work, ideas on deepening impact and leading edge thinking on emerging trends, which will deeply affect the ability to end poverty. David's career started out within the UK life insurance industry, Zurich Insurance. He worked within people and organisational development. In 2001, David volunteered for a month with a disability NGO in Bangalore. This secondment altered the course of his career, and he hasn't looked back. Going on to be CEO for one of Zurich's NGO partners in India, before returning to Zurich to work on flood resilience, first in-house and now for their foundation. While Chris has over 25 years' experience in international development and humanitarian programming, having worked for various international NGOs, His expertise lies in mainstreaming disaster risk reduction, adaptation, and resilience. Chris, David, welcome. Thank you very much. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for being here. Great to have you, chaps. David, turning to you first, could you share with us a little bit more about what you're working on? Sure. So Chris Chris and I uh, have been been working together for at least the last sort of seven or eight years or so, looking at uh, the whole issue of flood resilience. Uh, so Zurich in 2013 started its uh, Zurich Flood Resilience Program. We brought together community partners, academia. We tried to harness some of the work of uh, Zurich's risk expertise within within the business to try and get ahead of the pre-event uh, building of flood resilience. Uh, that program was originally scheduled for five years, was extended in 2018. And in fact, in the last month has been extended further and now goes out until December 2024. So that's basically looking at working with communities to get ahead of the curve on um, on the issue of flooding uh, so that they can build better resilience and end up where floods have no negative impact on their lives. And, and clearly it goes without saying that's a really vitally important piece of work to be doing. But Chris, um, bringing you in for you personally, but also from an organisation and a system perspective. Why is this particularly important? Well, personally, I've um, dedicated most of my career to humanitarian and development work, and particularly on disaster risk reduction and, and building resilience. So, um, I've worked for charities for over well over twenty years now, focusing on on this issue, and working for Practical Action 
and in partnership with Zurich has enabled me to continue that work, which has been incredibly valuable. Um, I'm driven by a sense of injustice, that poverty is not inevitable and that suffering is, is avoidable and that systems that cause these injustices can and must change if we believe in human rights, which we all say we do. So development actors working alone with governments can't solve this alone. It misses out the critical part of the puzzle. The economy drives so much that's good and often not so good in society, and particularly driving risk and the risk of disasters and poverty. So we have to engage the private sector and having this uh, this opportunity to work with Zurich over such a long period of time and to, to get to know each other, understand each other's language and to find common ground has, has been you know, the chance of a lifetime for me personally. I think, well, from a personal point of view, I think I share a lot of a lot of where Chris is coming from in terms of drive, a recognition that poverty is not inevitable and that things need to change in order to change that. Where, where I think the other angle from an importance point of view comes along is, is also a desire to actually make the corporate sector a better player in this, in this whole equation. All of the different sectors that the world is split up into, whether that's government, whether that's corporations, whether that's the development sector or volunteering or whatever it happens to be, all have a part to play uh, in the way in which the world works. Uh, and in my view, for too long, uh, business has, has has lived up to Milton Freeman's view of business, that the only business of business is business. And actually, it's not. The, the responsibilities that a business has uh, go much wider than that. And the resources that they have uh, can be can be harnessed in a, in a much more effective way. So, I mean, the thing that drive, drives me about this whole partnership is about finding ways in which we can really harness whatever it is that the corporation is good at. Uh, so it's not just the fact it's got resources of a financial nature, but also its expertise, its skills, and its desire for an improvement in the world to try and harness that for, for the betterment of people. It's, it's not blind kind of uh, disinterested or, or selfless, because frankly, the only way business is successful is if society is successful. Successful businesses rely upon societies being able to harness and utilise business. So it's really important, I think, from a business perspective as well, uh, to try and work and harness what we can for the betterment of society. So David, Chris, I'm really keen to get into practical ways of learning from your collaboration and from your partnership. What would you say are the key things that you would share with others who are embarking on such partnerships or collaboration? Chris, perhaps we could start with you first. The best solutions to problems are those that are arrived at by bringing people with vested interests together to share their perspectives. People are perfectly capable of deciding for themselves what their priorities are and they'll usually take the right decision if they have all the information and they keep learning together about the changes they're facing in particular climate change. Investing in locally driven solutions and ideas has you know a longer impact, a longer lasting impact than interventions that sideline people they're intending to help. And so creating a kind of multi-sectoral Alliance in this way has enabled us to bring together the expertise and the, the voice, if you like, from the community, the people affected worst by flooding globally, with the insurance sector, Zurich's kind of enormous expertise and capacity 
to help with risk engineering, the academic sector to help us develop innovative ways of analysing and understanding the complexity of risk and resilience. And critically, what we do is we broker a process that puts the local people affected, most vulnerable people affected by flooding at the heart of the process and gives them the evidence they need to be able to take decisions along with their local governments and uh, other stakeholders locally. And we do that through an approach called Flood Resilient Measurement for Communities Approach, which is a structured, rigorous kind of process to help people understand the range of factors across their lives. Uh, We use a framework called the Five Capitals, the Sustainable Livelihoods Framework, which looks at different elements of people's lives and assets and helps them understand to what extent those things are vulnerable or exposed or that they have capacity um, that they can draw on or that we can increase. And they come up with a range of solutions to help, priorities and solutions to help them improve their lives. And oftentimes this, this kind of is fed directly into local government planning and investment. So this is very much to do with improving how budgets and investments are spent of all types, people's own family budgets, the local government um, development budgets, private sector investments, and right up to kind of national and international global kind of funding mechanisms. So I think that's a community-driven process and connecting from the local to the global level and uh, thinking systemically and thinking about the future, building in um, future projections of change, particularly climate change, but not just climate change, population growth and economic development is is critical. And um, David, anything you want to add to that in terms of kind of key learnings to share with others? Well, I think there's a couple of things, particularly from um, a partnership point of view. Um, one, one is to kind of allow your partners uh, to bring the best of themselves into the mix. Uh, so the, the way in which the Zero Flood Resilience Alliance works is a very distributed leadership model in the sense that all of us collectively, uh, so whether that's the, the Zurich Foundation, which I represent, or the Zurich Business, or the NGO partners, or the academia, all come together into fora where we discuss and share our perspectives to determine the way forward. So we all bring our expertise into the picture. And it's not Zurich or the foundation that leads all of those discussions. Uh, it is distributed amongst the partners. And one of the things that I've, that I've learned as a, as a kind of representative of a funder is, is the need to be able to give up power to, to kind of allow partners to be able to make those decisions in that collective environment in a, in a way that harnesses their capacity. I think that allows us to, to create more than the sum of our parts by, be, by being together in that kind of way. The other thing that I think is, is really important about that is that the way in which we approach this whole programming is with flexibility in mind. There is a a tendency, I think, amongst traditional funder-recipient relationships to look at activities and to fund particular activities. And so, you know, irrespective of what happens on the ground, uh, the job of the NGO is to deliver the activities that they are being paid to deliver. I think the reality is that change is a constant. It's always happening around so you may set off with all good intentions of doing something, but change comes along and means that life is different. And in the traditional relationship, that's a whole host of negotiations about changing what you're going to do in a program. With the way in which we're working, we accept that change is inevitable. We accept that 
we need to be responding to that change and be flexibly moving, keeping the end goal in mind. So it's a case of shifting, I think, the big learning for me is shifting away from output reporting and output thinking and starting much more to to get to the nub of what we're trying to do, the change we're trying to achieve, and recognising that that isn't a straight line, that there isn't a a single pathway towards that. I'm going to come back to some of those ways to deepen impact in a bit and perhaps some sort of further advice for others. But I just want to delve into a little bit about the kind of trends and what you're seeing. You are sitting, running this, quite frankly, kind of leading edge partnership, looking at flood resilience that arguably engages lots of different types of stakeholders or, or impacts lots of different types of stakeholders. What are the top trends that you're really seeing um, and that you think others should be kind of aware of, I guess. Chris, do you want to pick that one up first? Sure. I think what we've all seen over the last 10 months or so is that the system, so-called normality, wasn't working and and we need a, a new normal. And that oftentimes the solutions are actually quite simple. They don't need to be incredibly complex. It's about arriving at simple solutions that help people and giving them control over those processes to help themselves. I think we are in this alliance are all totally committed to the concept of building resilience and putting people at risk at the heart of that process. We started out with a focus on floods because floods generate more economic damage than any other hazard globally, but we particularly the, the NGOs in the Alliance, are committed to you know, working, building people's resilience to all kinds of hazards and risk in their lives. And what we've seen in our approach is that if you build resilience, then comes along something else, and in this case, the impact of COVID-19. Communities become stronger as a result of the process, and they're able to demonstrate the resilience you've built in other ways that were unpredictable. So building resilience makes sense. It doesn't have to be complicated. It's cost effective. And if you put people affected at the heart of that process, invariably, you see a better return on your investment. Critically also, I think you need to have a systemic perspective. Solutions and sustainability of things that work is dependent on everyone who has a vested interest in in that solution being involved in its design and choosing the innovation in the first place. So things that work best are, you know, things that suit all of the people who who have a role in in delivering and sustaining that solution. And uh, lastly, I would say evidence is critical. You know, development is very complex; it's constantly changing, and that's it's been a real challenge in in our sector to to generate the evidence that convinces, particularly donors, to invest in what works because they're accountable to their to their own taxpayers and their you know, the back donors. So, you know, it's, it's hard to convince people what works. But actually engaging in a process as we have, we've shown that well, despite the complexity, you can make sense of it all and you can generate credible evidence that helps people take decisions in their own lives and uh, in governments nationally. And we hope uh, increasingly this is going to help convince governments internationally to commit more to this critical area. And David, do you have a sort of different sense of the tr- key trends coming through, or only from only from only from the, the the kind of different partnership lens? So, I mean, one of the one of the things um, that I, that I was first engaged with when I when I first started working in this sector about fifteen years ago, I guess, was 
the, the kind of the difficulty that NGOs had for evolving as organizations to deliver long-term impact. Um, they were very often trapped into short-term and uh, program-focused funding and no kind of recognition that the organization itself uh, was key to delivering the outcome. And I think that that's a trend that has been evolving over the last decade or so. Uh, and more and more funders are recognizing that you need to sustain the organization, you need to build their capacity, you need to kind of extend their ability to be able to deliver programming more effectively if you want your money to go further. So I think there is a there is a trend that's already been merging from that. But I think that then leads you into a logical place of seeing and how do you deepen that relationship beyond just working and helping an organization to be to be its best self. And that increasingly is being seen amongst the fund, the funder population that I talk to. There's a, there's a lot more people starting to think in terms of longer term, deeper partnership working, where they bring not just their funding, but also expertise and guidance and access to their networks and so on into the equation, uh, because they have a shared interest in delivering the outcome. It's not always easy to move from a traditional kind of um, writing a check to a, a, a kind of more engaged process. But increasingly, the conversation is moving in that general direction. Just done some work with an organization in the UK called the Partnering Initiative, uh, looking at what, what it would take for a foundation um, or a funder to be able to shift into that space where they were able to do more partnership working. And uh, I know they're hoping to bring out uh, materials and, and guidance and support to, uh, to funders working in that general direction. Um, so I see that as, as probably where, where the future holds. And that, of course, will help us engage the private sector better. It will help us connect more of the sectors together to, frankly, tackle some of the world's most challenging problems, uh, which by their very nature, um, the complexity of them requires us all to be, uh, be playing a part in that. And just picking up on that uh, piece, David, we also do a lot of work with the Partnering Initiative. They're fantastic people. In fact, uh, Darian was a previous podcast interviewee. So if anybody listening wants to get hold of any of the work that they are talking about, I will again put the links into the words that sit alongside this podcast. But do have a look at some of those other podcasts um, to hear from, from those guys in person. I said I'd go back to talking about how do we deepen impact. But in some respects, it feels like this whole conversation is about deepening impact and partnerships and, and how we can kind of really make them as useful as possible. Chris. Is there anything else that you really want to kind of add to this? You know, how do we deepen impact from these partnerships? How do we make it lasting and sustainable? I firstly want to echo something David just said, which has been absolutely invaluable, and is the commitment of, of donors, and particularly in this case, Zurich, to work on a problem over the long term, not be put off by its complexity, and not put the pressure on us to kind of deliver results too soon. We're starting to see some huge kind of successes in our work by virtue of the fact that we've been able to be present in communities and in the countries funded by Zurich for getting on for eight years now. And that is not typical. And there does need to be a change in how um, funding structures work, particularly if we're working on things like climate change and poverty reduction and resilience. If you invest short term with a short term mindset, you're only going to have fund quick fixes and, and you know, the, the elastoplast rather than getting to the, to the real cause of the, the, the problem. So I would say 
private sector, you know, the government sector and the non-governmental sector all working together, committing to work on challenging problems over the long term and find common ground in that is absolutely critical. Focusing on on the outcome, the goal you want, trying to agree what that goal should be. It's not always easy, but it's very it's, it's invaluable to get on the same page early on to have that common kind of vision and focus on the impact rather than the kind of steps along the way and the activities, as David said. Um, I would say also investing in in knowledge and learning processes, particularly if you give if you give people the knowledge they need to to improve their lives, then invariably they will take the right decision. So supporting people to come together, to learn from each other, to hear each other's perspectives, and to just have access to basic information that many of us take for granted is, you know, in my experience, the, the most worthwhile investment, I would say. And David, from your perspective, how do we deepen that impact? Well, I think I think there are there are two things that I think will really make a difference. One one is something that Chris um, mentioned as well, which is about alignment. Um, if partners can understand the vision that they both share uh, for for the outcome, uh, then they'll both be in a much better position to target their resources into that general direction. Um, so certainly, the Flood Resilience Alliance has a very clear view about what the future needs to look like. Uh, it aligns with all of our strategic visions as organisations. So each of us as an individual organisation has our own strategic vision. But achieving this outcome will help all of us to achieve our organisational goals. Um, and that alignment, I think, helps us come together so that we can uh, bring, as I say, the best of us uh, into that relationship. But underpinning all of that, and I think this is probably the most fundamental thing about uh, about any of these relationships, is trust. The challenge, I think, in, in the sector is that in the past, there have been far too many examples of paying lip service to doing the right thing um, on the one side and uh, not being able to have very much impact on the other side because of delivering the same old, same old. I mean, you only have to walk around Africa and see broken down water pumps to know that not all development has worked uh, in the past. And that kind of a kind of challenge for each side is uh, undermines the ability of being able to get together. So fundamentally, if funders can start to trust their partners and partners can start to trust their donors, that they're all in it together, that they all have the shared, same shared um, alignment, that they're open with each other and so on, then that unlocks the whole, the whole opportunity that uh, the partnership can really bring. Uh, and I can't emphasise it enough that this lack of trust is what hampers good development. And uh, it's only with good trust and good ability to be able to have open and frank conversations um, about what's going wrong, about what's going right, that you can actually adapt and, and, and move things towards impact. So my final question for this conversation today, you shared lots of advice with us. For those who are listening, is there a particular one kind of call to action you'd like to, to share? David, do you want to pick that one up first? Sure, thanks. Uh, the one thing that I think we we have evolved over the last three or four years is the is the flood resilience measurement for communities (FRMC). Chris has mentioned it earlier in this conversation. One of the ways in which we believe that we can have the biggest impact is for us to share that as far and as wide as possible. So, for anyone out there who is working on flood resilience, who has got flood resilience activities at a community level, and would like to understand 
how we can support you in helping to build that resilience and, and to use those tools. The tools we're happy to make available, we're happy to be able to provide support for those that use us. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to put a link to the document you need to find out a little bit more. Brilliant. Thank you very much, David. And uh, Chris, bringing you in next. Go back to my first point. I think that suffering and poverty is not inevitable and that everyone working in the private sector, we're all human beings. We're all, we're all engaging the private sector somehow. And we have as much of a part of the solution as, as others do. So don't think it's the, the job of uh, development workers or, or someone else to, to kind of work on these com- complex and challenging issues. We're all involved. And if we work together, we'll find the solutions, no matter how complex they are. Well, Chris Anderson and David Nash, thank you very much for sharing your wisdom, your insight, and um, some really useful practical advice there. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thanks a lot for having us. And if you like what you've heard today, please do rate and subscribe to us. I would also love to hear your feedback. So please do drop me a line at any time. I'm Katie at businessfightspoverty.org. Many thanks. Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty. 